the war for quality talent in crypto, um, I'll be honest, I've never seen anything like it. Hey everybody, this is Phil Hendricks and welcome to my first ever podcast episode. Today I'm joined by another Phil, Phil Gomes. He is the Chief Communications and Marketing Officer for a blockchain infrastructure company called Block. That's B-L-O-Q. You may also know him from any one of Block's affiliate crypto projects such as Vesper, Titan, and Metronome. Phil is gracious enough to share his knowledge on various crypto topics ranging from blockchain's impact on digital media and supply chain, how someone can break into a marketing and communications role in crypto, even his experience apprenticing at a cachaça distillery in Brazil, which no, it wasn't crypto related, but it was a lot of fun to hear about. Hopefully you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Phil Gomes. Phil, thanks for joining. Um, I am excited and both a little nervous to uh, record this conversation because <laughs> this is the first conversation that I am recording and planning to put up as a podcast. But, you know, I do appreciate you taking some time from your busy day to, to do this. Absolutely. So Not a problem. So you are the Chief Communications and Marketing Officer for Block and its affiliate organizations, Vesper and Titan. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Vesper, Titan, Metronome, and the Block platform uh, for uh, blockchain infrastructure and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Got it. So we're going to touch on Vesper in a little bit. Um, okay. But where I wanted to start was actually with a white paper that you wrote in 2017 for the American Association of Ad Agencies. Um, Wait, you're the guy that read that? I read that, yeah. I managed to find it. <laughs> you're the it. one. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> it's on script. So I didn't have to join the uh, the association, fortunately. Yeah. Um, but you made a pretty bold claim in that paper. Um, you said that blockchain and Web3 will have a bigger impact than social media did in the mid-2000s, which, I mean, Facebook launched in 2004, Twitter launched in 2006, Instagram, I don't know if you counted that, but that launched in 2010. So, right. I mean, we're going to assume that people listening to this podcast um, are somewhat familiar with blockchain, maybe less with Web3. So if you want to define that, but my question to you is, like, why do you think that? And how has your stance evolved since publishing that paper? Well, yeah, so that was four years ago. And, um, you know, I think about all the things I talked about in that paper, right, is uh, uh, I think about the things I got right, the things, the, the things that maybe didn't stand the test of time all that well. Um, the title of the paper, if I remember correctly, was The Marketing Power of Digital Permanence, right? And, and, and the thing that I was really, really uh, the thing about blockchain technology that really resonated with me at the time was, again, this notion of permanence uh, in a world where uh, digital media is very, very malleable, right? And um, it would be a, a few years later where uh, there were some there were some high-profile instances of digital media being malleable to the point that it did a great disservice to the uh, the readership. Right. And so uh, that's the thing I was really, really attracted by. And, and the, the thing that I, I, I now four years later, I think about it, I could have de-emphasized the permanence part, even though it's very important. And I could have emphasized 
the the notion of distributed consensus, right? Uh, which I don't think came across as well in, in the paper. Um, some of the applications that I highlighted uh, were certainly attractive to me at the time, and, and, and they still are as a communicator. Uh, for example, I, I still think that, that companies are doing really, really interesting things with supply chain. Um, you know, whether or not that, that goes absolutely mainstream and whether or not it does so in a way that uh, consumers can value it, I think is, you know, still, you know, to be determined. Um, I talked about loyalty points on there. I don't think that has shaken out the way that, that maybe people have hoped. Um, I talked about uh, ownership of virtual items. Now, I discussed it in the context of gaming, but you're seeing this now being reflected in the, the current craze around NFTs, right? So uh, even though I didn't have a term for it, I, okay, I got that one sort of right. And my, my admonition to the, to the marketing community remains unchanged. And that is that it, it, it's, it's really great to, to explore and be passionate about new technologies and that sort of thing. Uh, but also being aware of, you know, maybe perhaps it's, it's limitations, right? And, you know, I ask people, okay, this thing that you want to do, can it be addressed by more conventional means? If so, do that. <laughs> and really, really think about uh, what blockchain technology might be able to offer in, in a way that is perhaps unique. So, I, you know, four years later i got it half right you know maybe i i might be moved to revise the paper at some point but uh i'm i'm glad you found it actually because um you know god it's been a while since i've thought of it yeah i mean i definitely thought you were spot on with digital ownership and nfts you know minus you explicitly calling it out as an nft but you touched on supply chain um, and something yeah. else that i thought was really interesting around that was um, what you call proof of provenance. So oh, yeah. what is proof of provenance and how does that impact blockchain as a storytelling technology? Because you don't often hear blockchain being called that. Okay, so a um, couple of reactions to that, actually. So let's start with, um, let's start with the supply chain question, right? So the, the notion that don't you want to have a consensus-based permanent record of um, a product as it goes from point A to point B, right? You know, don't you want to know that, um, you know, there are signatures attesting to the fact that it crossed certain steps or the product has certain characteristics, right? Um, so that could be if you're selling, say, organic cotton or something like that, you know, how many signatories from how many different places does it take for you to have that confidence that the uh, cotton is organic. Uh, there are some projects that have looked into uh, anti-slavery, um, you know, particularly in terms of uh, fishing. I think one of the examples in the paper uh, borrowed from the uh, fishing industry. And so, you know, it's the notion that, you know, hey, let's have a permanent record of how, of the different steps in the value chain for this, this, this product. And one of the ideas that I came up with um, that again, I don't know if it, if it necessarily stands the test of time uh, because I'm just plucky enough to name it after myself. I came up with something called Gomes, Gomes's Law, 
which was uh, the number of attestations a product needs uh, is um, inversely proportional to the distance between that product and your bloodstream. So, um, hmm. you know, uh, organic cotton for your T-shirt, you know, you're fine if it's, you know, maybe two or three parties attest to it. If it's food, maybe more. If it's medicine, maybe more. And if it's a kidney, maybe even more than that, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but one of the issues with a lot of the excitement, particularly around the time I wrote that paper, a lot of the issues around the excitement around um, uh, blockchain used in supply chain records and proof of providence is th there was this, this childhood disease around that time where people were saying, well, if it's on the blockchain, it must be true, right? And, 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 and part of it I blame on, you know, there was uh, uh, the cover story in The Economist, which, I mean, bravo to them in 2015 for putting this out there, but it, it called uh, blockchain the trust machine, right? You know, the great chain of being certain about stuff, right? Um, and I think people took it the wrong way. And people started thinking that, yeah, well, if it's on the blockchain, it must be true, which is kind of like what the pundits were saying about corporate blogging around 2005, right? Is that, wow, if your company is blogging, it means you're transparent. It's like, no, it doesn't. It means that you're using a particular publication platform, uh, but it doesn't mean you're being transparent. You could be lying through your teeth on this thing. Um, and so my my caution was, you know, just because you put something on the, the blockchain doesn't necessarily mean uh, that is going to be true, but the, the only thing that you've really made permanent is that uh, you, if the, if the record is provably tied to your wallet, uh, at this time, at this date, certified that this, that this particular thing was true, right? Uh, you haven't attested to the truth of it. You've just merely attested to the fact that this is what you claimed at this time by signing that transaction. Now, um, let's take this to media and this is where this is where it gets gets really interesting right is that um, actually at Edelman uh, so I, I was at the Edelman PR firm for uh, 13 years before I came over to, to block and one of the things I did there was I ran their um, blockchain center of excellence for my last year and a half there and that's how I found out about block and that's why I'm here um, but one of the projects that we had was uh, something called Reconto, which was, uh, and you can find it right now, github.com slash Reconto, because it's open source. And it's basically a WordPress plugin um, that it's in alpha stage. So if anybody wants to pick it up, go for it. A uh, WordPress plugin where uh, it would hash or fingerprint the contents of a WordPress blog, blog post to the Litecoin blockchain. Hmm. Uh, and what you therefore do is that you can, you know, if, if somebody were to surreptitiously change uh, that post, they would have to, you know, create another record. Otherwise, you would have that, that, that conflict. And this was born out of a time when I think um, lawandcrime.com was a website that caught the New York Times surreptitiously scrubbing uh, negative mentions of Sheryl Sandberg. For example, um, it was during a time where people were criticizing Comcast because its net neutrality uh, pledge uh, would frequently change without any indication that it had changed. Um, so we created this Reconto thing, and it just sort of you know sat on the shelf 
uh, until I left and, to, and then it became uh, open source. And um, I, again, it goes back to this notion of, you know, how do you merge blockchain technology with uh, publishing in order to have this idea of, you know, what is, um, you know, what is a provable audit trail of the time, date, source, and state of a piece of digital content, right? So it, it allows, it, you have to kind of rethink the truth. Now, back to the supply chain question, um, you know, what if, for example, uh, you're transporting uh, goods that must be refrigerated, like vaccines, for example, to make it very current. And let's say, for example, um, you know, the refrigerated truck dies on the freeway and the temperature in the, in the cargo is rising, rising, rising. And the truck driver is like, oh, yeah, but I can't turn around and go back. And oh, my God, whatever. Uh, takes the uh, uh, takes his cooler maybe for his from his lunchbox and puts it on the temperature sensor or something like that. I mean, there are different ways one can, can mess with that. Um, I, I think it's. I think it is a topic worth exploring, and I think that it's a particular nut that has yet to be cracked. But you know, at the same time, I think as long as everybody is honest as to its limitations, uh, those limitations being human failure, um, we'll still get to the right place. And I think the solution is, you know, again, uh, the more signatures, the better. The 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 more inputs, the better such that the reasonable person can look at it and say, okay, I'm pretty confident that nobody had his arm on the other guy, you know, and, and coerced a signature or something like that. All different right. ways you can think about it. Really. Yeah. I guess thinking about it from the consumer's perspective, you really have to put your trust in those attestations and, and who is attesting to it on the blockchain, but you won't necessarily know, like in the example of the vaccine, whether or not, um, the truck driver, like you said, hacked the system in a way where he was able to prove that, oh, no, it stayed below this temperature because right, he put right. it in his Yeti box or something like that. <laughs> well, and, and, and also, and also, I mean, I think there's, um, again, I don't want to, I don't want to discourage people from exploring these, uh, these, these topics and, and these solutions. Um, but at the, at the same time, yeah, it comes down to, um, you know, do you as a reasonable consumer accept X amount of attestations? Now, uh, again, according to the Gomes law, I said earlier, that might change depending on whether we're talking about vaccines or beef jerky, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. Or T-shirts, for example. But, um, you know, I, I think I think there's. I think people. I think people really do need to think about, you know, again, the the um, the 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 potential for, you know, for I don't want to say fraud because it's a strong term, but yeah. But also, what's also richly important too is that you mentioned the consumer, you mentioned the user interface. Now, here's another challenge that nobody is talking about in the supply chain scenario, is that by the time it's presented to a consumer. Um, and let's say it's presented on their mobile phone. Um, through that three inch screen, has anything been presented to them that makes them trust the data they're getting more than through conventional means? Because by the time it goes through that three inch screen, 
um, what exactly do you know, right? That, that you that you that you didn't know before from a trust perspective. And so, you know, what happens then is maybe less of a technological issue, but more of a consortium uh, consortium marketing issue, right? Mm. Is that you know what is going to be the new good housekeeping seal of approval or something like that where it's it's like well okay if i'm getting this information through this particular experience of this particular app and i see that these attestations have taken place i now have greater confidence than before right mm -hmm. um and that's going to take time and that's going to that's going to require probably a lot more effort and a lot more money and a lot more um cross industry and cross company collaboration than uh than the um than the engineering question alone i would imagine probably government or at least pseudo governmental um, bodies as well i'd imagine like well you know but also a lot of people who get into the space have a very you know have a very libertarian bent to them right and and i think that one of the things that drives a lot of people in this industry is that is the notion that well if i have this audit trail that is highly highly tamper resistant especially in the case of bitcoin for example um is that enough right and and, and are we putting actual teeth in the concept of self-regulation right um, because we see this all the time where industries go through this period of, oh, we're self-regulating because um, we have too much to lose if we lose the trust of our public, right? And then what do they do? They do something that makes them lose the trust of their public. And then here comes uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, and here comes Dodd-Frank, and here comes all these re re regulatory regimes uh, that come in and then, then the pendulum starts to swing back again and maybe you know, properly presented to governmental bodies, they might understand this technology as something that biases the pendulum towards at least more effective self-regulation. Maybe that's the techno-utopian in me talking, but um, you know, you, you think of the, uh, the record fudging that was taking place uh, during the great accounting scandals of, you know, maybe about two decades ago, uh, Enron. Um, the case of Health South is probably not as famous as Enron, but they actually, uh, one of the ways that they cooked the books was when they found out that the regulators didn't pay attention to expenses under $5,000. Uh, if I remember the story correctly, they literally wrote a program that would create. Um, you know, hundreds of sub $5,000 fake transactions in order to cover up the hole, right? <laughs> Which would be difficult to do in the blockchain sense, right? And, and it's a fun thought experiment, one that I don't pretend to have an answer for, but it's a fun thought experiment. If blockchain technology were known, uh, mature, and uh, widely deployed, uh, would you have had an Enron? Or how much harder would it be for an Enron to happen, right? Again, I don't have that answer, but it's a very, very interesting thought experiment to go through. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I, uh, I'll leave that up to viewers to, to ponder on that. I do want to pivot slightly. <laughs> um, so how has your previous work with Wikipedia and Reddit influenced your outlook on open source and online communities? Ah, incredible question. Oh, wow. Um, so to, uh, to spin up the, the viewers slash listeners here, um, uh, about 2012, I was really active in a sort of a PR industry wide effort to get companies and their PR firms to behave according to Wikipedia's rules on the, the notion that, um, on the notion that it's in everybody's best interests to have accurate entries, right? And and there was this kind of bias in Wikipedia where it was like, well, if you were overly negative about the company, that more or less counts as being neutral, right? And so uh, a company representative would be deemed as having a conflict of interest, but, uh, you know, their antagonists maybe, you know, in... Uh, you know, the consumer affairs or even the NGO community or whatever were considered as being, you know, completely neutral, right? Which is is patently false. Um, so th that's that's how that started. And while it, while I didn't have a specific focus on Reddit as specific as Wikipedia, um, the instinct is still the same, right? In terms of in terms of transparency, in terms terms of being above board, in terms of um, being upfront with, with who you are and what your motivation is for being within those forums. And it's all but the most curmudgeonly that will show up and that, that, that will, that, all but the most curmudgeonly would be happy to welcome that, that conversation. Um, I think what happened was that Wikipedia's rules were so unevenly enforced by the community and so opaque that it inspired bad behavior uh, by PR firms and their representatives, uh, such that maybe perhaps they would uh, go in under pseudonyms or um, or create you know what are called single-purpose accounts, right, which do nothing but goaltend to somebody's entry. Um, you know, and and it, it came with the recognition that not liking a community's rules is not a justification for breaking them, right? And uh, you know, even so, the the many years that I uh, that I was doing this, about six years um, at at Edelman, and we had created a group called Corporate Representatives for Ethical Wikipedia Engagement Crew for short. Uh, because all the good acronyms were taken, um, and uh, you know the 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 tendency towards bad behavior was was you know was something that we absolutely fought against, and and I would get into with with clients and uh, both you know uh, retained and wished for, um, I would get into these very heated arguments where uh, it was like you know well you don't understand you're the our stakes are somewhere than caring about what goes on with this, you know, air quotes community. And I said, well, would you say that about any other community? 
Would you say that about the, a community known as regulators? Would you say that about a community known as customers? Would you say that about a community uh, known as journalists? Probably not, right? But because um, people tend to overvalue credentialism, uh, people looked at Wikipedia as like, who are these unwashed ruffians? And I wanted to fight against that. And then uh, bringing this to open source, uh, it's again, very much the open source um, ethos of, again, transparency and bringing, uh, you know, bringing a contribution to the table, right? Um, without some kind of uh, uh, reliance on uh, a, a title or uh, an argument based on authority. It, it really comes down to what, what are you bringing this to this community and do they find it valuable, right? So. Right. And you have a lot more, I would say, direct community management experience through Vesper, um, right. which, which right. I want to I have to a talk. great team behind me. Yeah, I, I want to underscore, double mm -hmm. underscore that uh, it's not me or mostly me. Uh, mm -hmm. You know it, it, uh, that we have a we have a great set of uh, community managers, both officially appointed and otherwise, that uh, that make that job easy. So. Yeah, and I definitely want to unpack that. But my my question to you, um, revolving around that, is how do you think about community management for decentralized projects like Vesper? Because um, you know it's not your typical community. It's it's one of the largest DeFi communities, arguably. Um, you guys have over 1.6 billion in total value locked. Nearly, I, I just um, searched through the Discord channel today. You have like nearly 700 members, several community admins, um, and you got a lot of cool stuff going. So I'm curious how you think about community management. Oh, I think we're. I think we're up to three thousand members, actually. Oh, you might okay. Have, you might have been. You might have been looking at who was online at that time. I, yeah, um, it was probably just who was online. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's closer to closer to thirty five hundred, I think. Um, you know, I mean, kind of, kind of looking at the community management piece in a way that is parallel to how we're looking at Vesper. Right. So, um, for for listeners and viewers who are who are perhaps new to Vesper. Um, you know, we aim to make DeFi as easy as humanly possible. Um, and uh, the analogy I often use is that uh, we want to make, you know, putting your crypto in DeFi as easy as picking a fund in your 401k, right? And if you've ever had the experience of a 401k, um, you know which funds are made out of what, right? You know, so you know, you know their composition, right? oh, this is the mid-cap growth technology opportunity fund, or this is the uh, uh, conservative bond fund, or this is the aggressive um, you know, international opportunity fund or something like that. And uh, it's, um, you know, it's marketed that way for a reason, right? And because it's clear. And we, we, that's what we are doing with Vesper at the same time we are expanding to new and different um, yield generating products. Um, you know, right now we offer um, opportunities in uh, in ETH wrapped Bitcoin, uh, USDC. We just launched a link pool, uh, and we uh, have a die pool as well. And uh, you know, that's you know, deposit your crypto, get more crypto. Right? Uh, we're going to have. Um, a uh, product with that is, you know, you deposit crypto X, you're going to earn crypto Y, right? And that has a whole bunch of other 
um, aspects to it as well. And um, over time, you know, obviously we started with identifiable members, right? You know, I'm, I'm here under my real name and putting my own reputation on the line, uh, as is our, as are our co-founders, uh, um, Jeff Garzik, who was one of the uh, early contributors to Bitcoin, Matthew Rosak, who was a longtime investor, uh, Jordan Kruger, who is our head of DeFi uh, here at Block. Um, so it's starting from a very small, very identifiable team, and uh, it's moving out from there. And our our goal, uh, I like to call it the mission, the mantra, and the measuring stick, um, is to be uh, to slowly cede that control to the community over time, in a way that is is thoughtful and uh, doesn't throw caution to the wind. Um, so that's that's how Vesper is moving towards uh, more of a DAO-like structure, and we're doing it in uh, incremental steps. Um, and we're doing that the same way we're doing it the same way in uh, marketing, right? In, in the marketing and communication space. And uh, for example, uh, just today, we announced that our uh, our brand guidelines, uh, complete with scalable vector graphics and the color palette and the typeface and everything you need to pr to produce more or less official looking Vesper stuff, uh, art, merchandise, et cetera, uh, is online. You know, it's, it's, it's in our GitBook docs ready to go. Um, very early on in the beta process, uh, we, had, uh, we had a few people raise their hand and say, um, you know, I want to be a community manager, or I want to help with growth hacking, or I want to help with uh, any number of things. Uh, you yourself distinguished yourself by um, uh, contributing that uh, that uh, intro and how-to video, uh, which which uh, was since translated to Japanese, actually. <laughs> by, uh, and I got double the views of mine, which I'm very bitter about. <laughs> Which yeah, which halfway around the world, somebody uh, grabbed your your video and and did something with it, and yeah. it's uh, it's wonderful to see. And um, I find it very gratifying every time I, I go into um, um, I go into our, our Discord in the Comms Marketing Channel, and uh, and what's different about the Vesper community versus other communities I've I've observed is that very often communities will quickly descend into what have you done for me? Whereas the Vesper community distinguishes itself by saying, what can I do? Right. And I think that's very, very um, profound. Um, and it, it, it's something that I want to make sure is is encouraged and over time the best thing that i think i can do is be seen as um less of a quote unquote uh, leader or uh, cmo or whatever and and at, at the most be seen as a, a an effective convener if that's even a term um, an effective convener of of a community, and you know, able to deliver very few, very narrowly drawn rules that allow um, creativity and evangelism to flourish. 
and I, and I see that as my role. So what do you what do you think you guys did differently to create that more service minded community? If I had to put my finger on one thing, it, it, it was the uh, the extended extended beta period that um, that we that we had. We initiated our beta in let's see December twenty second, twenty twenty, which extended to uh, the date of the full launch, which was February seventeenth, twenty twenty one, and. I think that runway helped not only in terms of, you know, you know, everybody just sort of, you know, from an engineering perspective and a build perspective, crossing, you know, crossing every T, dotting every I, uh, we certainly spent a lot of time working on the, the Vesper user interface, which um, I'm, glad, I'm glad to say people always bring up. Right, people always say, "I love the Vesper inner." Good because we spent a lot of time on it, and uh, and I'm glad that 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 everybody loves it. Um, but I think also as a consequence during that time, people who discovered our Discord early found out that they could have some level of influence over how things were going to go, and especially during those early days. Excuse me, um, especially during those early days. Um, you know, you, you know, the, you could see, and in fact, he's still very active. Uh, Jeff Garzik is, uh, you know, was, was, you know, essentially the host <laughs> of, uh, of it during, during the early days. And um, I think that helped as well, right? Is that people felt that they had some influence, they had access, uh, they had ownership. Now, of course, it was a, it was an incentivized beta, right? Um, so they felt that they had ownership and I think that was instrumental in inspiring that kind of, um, uh, that kind of esprit de corps, uh, that you, that you point out. Got it. All right. So I know we, um, emailed, um, a little bit on this. Any thoughts on on DAOs and how they might impact online communities? Um, I think if I think if DAOs do their job correctly, right, and if and if we have good case studies to point to, um, there will be no difference between what we call a DAO and what we call an online community, right? And and I mm-hmm. I would love to see a point and again this is the techno utopian in me uh, speaking um i would love to see um a point where uh, when we talk about online communities that there always is some kind of uh, ownership component that a dao presents right uh just like for example when i talk about blockchain when i talk about blockchain technology and marketing um, we know we are doing our jobs as marketers in this space when we figure out that um, a way to make the technology disappear. Um, because uh, one of my favorite examples is something called RSS, or really simple syndication. It was a very popular technology during the emergence of uh, social media and Web 2.0. And it was basically an easy way for web content to be, you know, shuttled back and forth between 
sites and into your browser, et cetera, et cetera. And um, nobody thinks about it now. It, it, uh, it, it's great for enthusiasts like myself, but um, nobody thinks about it now. Um, it's kind of disappeared into the woodwork of the internet. And um, I think we're gonna be seen as doing our job right as marketers when blockchain technology does the same thing. And uh, at a certain point, maybe my, my kids will remember uh, an age of digital stone knives and bearskins where the uh, the internet was less less trustworthy uh, than it is than it is you know when when they're my age right but there was a period of time where uh, oh my god people tolerated this right um, and and now they they think of it they'll they'll think of it as you know, not a not a big deal and maybe uh, as a corollary to that um, uh, maybe as you know, online communities come together in uh, you know, various, you know, various platforms, whatever, whatever ends up doing to Facebook, what Facebook did to MySpace, I think will probably be a DAO of some kind or, or be governed by it in some way. It's interesting. Um, you know, uh, and, and the, the interface that you get, maybe will be abstracted from it in a sense, but, um, you know, I think there, I think there are, you know, there have been interesting experiments in, in, in doing this, but, um, I, again, I, I think I think it'll only be successful to the degree to which uh, it just becomes accepted and expected as part of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've used BitCloud or have heard of BitCloud, but kind of heard of it. Um, you know, I. I uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, it was easy for me to kind of dismiss because I saw clout <laughs> and I went, oh, I, you know, K-L-O-U-T uh, back in the day. And But, uh, you know, I, I encountered it and I haven't dug into it um, more deeply, but, you know, I, I'm not I'm not going to discourage anybody to that, you know, wants to try these things out. Um, no, but I hadn't gone into it very deeply, no. Yeah, no, I, I do think decentralized media is kind of the future of social media. Um, yeah. I think we're still on a pretty early stage um, and there's a lot of clunky UI UX issues, but it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. And if we do have um, a blockchain based technology that usurps Facebook and Twitter. Right. And then there have been, there have been experiments and attempts and, uh, and things like that. And, and it's, it's something I absolutely, I absolutely encourage my, my only fear is that, um, you know, there's a wonderful book uh, by Virginia Postrel called The Future and Its Enemies. And uh, she identifies, you know, what are the enemies of the future? And she she calls them stasists, right? People who are uh, intent on preserving the, the status quo, right? And the stasists come in two species. One are the technocrats that will uh, try to say, well, innov this innovation is fine if you do it here, 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 and here, and in this particular way, uh, on a Tuesday, uh, you know, so on and so forth, you know, when the sun is out. Um, <clears throat> and then there are the reactionaries that don't even have that level of nuance and just say, well, just get rid of it, <laughs> you know, make it go away, you know. Right. You know, stand athwart history yelling stop, as William F. Buckley said. Um, so, 
I, I think that's I, I think that's what's most going to hobble this uh, the, this present revolution is is it's going to come from one of the two stasis camps, um, and I think one of the advantages of decentralization is that you know how and to what degree uh, does that cooperation matter, right? And you know, I, I think companies and governments and that sort of thing they um, they are certainly uh, they are certainly instruments of control. Um, and how often have you seen press releases that say uh, us big company are embracing blockchain and this legitimizes the category? <laughs> how, how many times? How yeah. many times have we seen that press release? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, here comes the conquering hero. We have legitimized blockchain. We have legitimized crypto. And it, it did not wait for the imprimatur of a company or a government to be seen, to, to be legitimate, right? It's legitimate on, purely on the basis of people getting together in distributed communities and deciding this, this is what I want to see in the world. Let's make it happen. Right. And so I would say to those those kinds of organizations, governments and and um, and, and, and companies and, and that sort of thing, is that it, it it it's a world that's not waiting for their endorsement, but but would welcome their collaboration. Right. And 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 that is, I understand, a a, a humbling experience, perhaps. But. Um, I, I think that that is the most that governments and, and companies can hope for is, is you know, you know it's, it's to basically say, again, you know, it's not, you know, what have you done for me? It's not even uh, what I'm going to do to you. It's, you know, what can I do? How can I help? Are you maybe suggesting that governments embrace the hacker ethic? Right. Well, I mean, even even if you don't um, fully subscribe to the tenets there, I mean, it, it's it's just a good way to behave, right? You know, I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments, and and, and you you don't have to be a Christian to look at the Ten Commandments and go, oh, do not kill, do not bear false witness. Okay, you know, I get <laughs> that. Right. Um, you know, um, and it's the same thing with the the, the hacker credo. Right, it's uh, uh, no bogus criteria. I think we touched on that a little earlier in this conversation. Uh, the notion of no bogus criteria, um, access to computing technology must be complete. Um, what there's there's seven tenets. Um, all of them are escaping me right now, but um, but yeah, I, I think that again, even if you aren't in computing and and maybe don't subscribe to the popular notion of quote unquote hacker. Um, if you read the hackers, the hackers credo, I forget where originally it was published. Um, again, it's not a bad way to run things. It's not a bad way to, to live one's life. So. so pivoting again slightly, how can someone break into a crypto marketing slash communications role? Uh, you asked me this today when I have spent uh, more time recruiting in the last week than I have in 10 years. The uh, Look, I mean, the, the, the talent pool is very rich, or I, I should say, 
that the talent need is very rich. The talent pool is is very shallow. Um, what do I mean by that? Is that uh, you've got a lot of crypto experts, you know, even people who might fancy themselves crypto influencers, who uh, maybe don't understand uh, marketing, communications, public relations, public affairs. Um, you've got incredibly talented people in communications, marketing, <laughs> public relations, and public affairs uh, who don't want to get into crypto because they've they've heard way too many stories about uh, oh my god currency of drug dealers you know, you know we've we've heard all that nonsense before um and the best way i think one can can come in is if one were to overbalance to overbalance on communication savvy marketing savvy that sort of thing understanding how to reach an audience, how to predict that audience's need. Um, those are incredibly valuable skills, right? Whereas, you know, I, 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 I get a lot of resumes and, and, and I, 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 I try to be a mentor, um, but, you know, far too often the conversation starts and stops with, I have 10,000 Twitter followers, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's, Bravo, you know, and, and I'm sure you worked really hard for those 10,000 Twitter followers. Um, but, you know, can can I rely on that person to make a really savvy, you know, decision in, you know, the organization's and the audience's best interests? You know, so I, I tell people, especially when I'm recruiting, because I'm recruiting both within the cryptosphere and I'm recruiting outside of the cryptosphere. And to that latter audience who maybe might have some nervousness, <clears throat> not about the whole currency of drug dealers thing, but, um, you know, oh my God, my, the learning curve is going to be insane. Um, I mean, I tell them, I can teach you crypto a hell of a lot faster than I can teach somebody public relations, communications, and marketing, right? Um, and... For some people, particularly people with PR agency backgrounds, where they have to get spun up really quickly on a topic or a company or whatever, that instinct is already built in, right? That instinct is already part of part of that DNA. Um, for people who really want to break into the space and and be superlative and, and to stand out, it helps if you've already volunteered for a project somewhere and have uh, delivered some kind of provable success. Um, an ability to create content that resonates, you know, good writing, good video skills. Um, you know, uh, being, being able to, to tell a story, um, you know, and then also being able to describe, um, you know, what one did in a crisis or a bear market or uh, any number of those things. Uh, that's that's absolutely uh, what I'm looking for. So you asked this question at a very opportune time because um, the war for quality talent in crypto, um, I'll be honest, I've never seen anything like it. And I've gone through the, the dot-com boom of the 90s. I've gone through the social media boom of the 2000s. And here we are in, you know, deep into, you know, 20, you know, early 2020s. 
and um, you know, I, I the, the 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 desire for talent is is great, but any company, any crypto organization worth working for, is going to want to have answers for those questions about the skill and craft of communications and marketing itself, right? Um, versus necessarily, I don't want to discount domain knowledge in crypto, um, but because um, that that is also very you know distinguishing. I don't want to dis distinguish that at all, but I would like to amplify um, you know all of the other skills that are necessary in order to be successful in any communications or marketing uh, scenario. That's great. So, so I know we got to land this plane. I got a couple quick questions for you. If you still got time, I could do this all night. Go for it. <laughs> so you are widely considered the PR industry's first blogger. <laughs> you found that. Okay. <laughs> did. What right. is, or will be the next best first for PR professionals? Okay, so uh, yes, I am known August, oh, cripes, uh, August 2000, <clears throat> when was it? It was August 2002, I think, was, no, it earlier, was about earlier. Maybe 2001, right? 2001, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, yeah, I, uh, that, that's a whole long story about how I ended up at that point. I didn't sit there going, <laughs> I'm the first <laughs> person to do this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that the next first sort of merging all of my favorites here um, is something, something akin to what maybe you're seeing uh, Verizon do on its corporate communications page which is uh, they've started uh, using blockchain technology in that notarizing capacity that I described a little bit earlier with Reconto. Um, they're starting to use it as part of their newsroom. And I would love to see, I would love to see corporate communicators and journalists do that at scale. Right. Um, and, and, and really, start to put trust back into uh, what is right now not very trustworthy, you know, digital media, right? Um, the analogy I use is that, um, you know, in the past, you could have a communications medium that was open or a communications medium that was secure, uh, but you can't have both, right? So 20th century, you have newspapers and you have radio. And once, you know, once that print hit the page, um, you're not going to change it, right? Uh, once the bell has been rung on the radio, you can't unring it, uh, you can't unbroadcast it. So, and the means of production were actually very expensive. So it's secure from that perspective, you know, uh, but it's not very open for that reason, right? Then you've got, you know, in the internet era, social media, Wikipedia, right? It's very open, uh, but it's just not very secure, right? Because you could log on to Wikipedia right now and, you know, uh, you, you would have scarcely fewer privileges on that system than the founder himself, Jimmy Wales, right? Uh, now they have an audit trail, but you know, do you have a reason to trust the Wikipedia audit trail? Hmm, I don't know. Um, 
But with blockchain technology poured on top of publishing, uh, we now have um, uh, we now have the ability to have publishing that is both secure and open, right? And um, I think while the Verizon case is an interesting one, um, I think it's just waiting for somebody to really do it at scale. So, got it. Yeah, I was um, I was thinking you might say someone to first mint an NFT. Or, Done. Uh... <laughs> hey, yeah, well, I did it not in the marketing sense. I, yeah. I, not in the marketing sense, but um, for Mother's Day last year, I uh, I made my wife an NFT, like 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 a, like a mom badge, <laughs> and uh, we actually uh, we we had a on we've had an ongoing joke in my family that uh, we should give medals for um, exemplary domestic behavior. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, the, the parent that has to fish a kid's tooth out of the toilet and I won't go into too much detail, um, <laughs> that, that person, that person gets, you know, the, the domestic excellence badge. And, um, so we've been joking about this, uh, even before we got married and, uh, I figured for mother's day, I would, I would create it just a badge for, again, exemplary household behavior. And, um, She's she's had it since Mother's Day, uh, and due to gas fees, actually, she doesn't want to transfer it. I'd like to think I've done exemplary things in the meantime as a husband, but uh, you know, gas fees being what they are. Um, but uh, but you know, marketing is there. My only fear is that the marketing services industry there is no card they won't overplay. And and I, I am I am concerned with NFTs that nobody is actually talking about the limitations very much. And um, and now it's like, oh, my God, it's like, is it in danger of jumping the shark? Now, I think it's a wonderful technology, which has a lot of great uses. Right. But uh, two weekends ago, it was it was a send up on uh, Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, you know. Uh, King marketer Gary Vaynerchuk is keynoting the consensus conference this year talking about NFTs, right? It's like, whoa, okay, you know, are, are we, uh, you know, are, are, is the marketing services industry just bear hugging NFTs too much? I don't know. Um, I, and I hope that people are eyes wide open as to the limitations of the technology. Uh, but I still think it has incredible potential, as as we've seen, you know, with the NBA and stuff like that. Now, in for the limitations, you're referring to um, possibly the Defiance article, right? On oh, that was great, wasn't it? That uh, you know, I, I swear to God, I, I, I emailed the journalist, right, Dan. I I, I, email, I emailed him right afterwards, and I was like, "Thank God you wrote that, right?" Because I've passed it to so many people in the marketing trade. It's like read this before you recommend nfts to your clients right and make sure you have a plan for you know how you're going to make this work and make it sustainable right because the marketing services industry is 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 notorious for this where they will sell some of the big brands on like things like branded microsites for example so let's say uh McDonald's is going to come out with a um, 
oh, I don't know, a, a lamb's meat burger or something like that. Who knows? And so chances are their marketing team will sell in something like, um, uh, you know, mclamb.com. And, you know, mclamb.com comes goes up. And after the promotion's over, uh, it becomes abandoned where it's not maintained. Somebody doesn't renew the domain name. It rots off the web. Um, that happens in the marketing services industry more often than you'd think where after the award is conferred, the invoice is paid and all that jazz, uh, this stuff just becomes abandonware. And what happens with NFTs, as the article rightly points out, is that more often than not, it functions as a deed to a location somewhere on the web. Uh, and you know there are certainly sophisticated ways to do it through IPFS and that sort of thing. The unsophisticated way is to just you know point to a URL and say, hey, this this is the thing you have a deed to. And if that website goes offline, or or in the worst case scenario, somebody replaces that web address with something you didn't buy, something that may be offensive. I don't know, um, you know. But uh, again. To the master point, I really hope the marketing services industry, all the PR agencies and the ad agencies, um, I really do hope they're thinking about this very, very carefully. Um, because again, the instinct is execute the program, get the KPIs, you know, get paid, submit for a few awards, go on to the next thing. Right. Right. And I hope that doesn't happen with NFTs. And hopefully that's a, a key takeaway for the consumer to do their own research and figure out right, right. if the NFT they're getting is not going to be abandoned where, like you said, later on. Right. That, that if, if sufficient attention has been paid to uh, the, the, the ongoing uh, storage and permanence of, of whatever it is they think they bought, right? Or right. they find they expensively rented it. Yeah. So one last question before I let you go. What can you tell the viewers and listeners about um, the Kashasa Diaries? I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> Kashasa Diaries. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I married into a Brazilian family uh, in 2007. And uh, my in-laws uh, are the... Um, are well known within the Kashasa appreciation societies of, uh, of Rio, Rio de Janeiro, and uh, got me into it. And, you know, and, and I was just fascinated by, well, here's a spirits category that's native to Brazil that I had never heard of as a, as a gringo. And um, with so much richness and depth and diversity, um, so for, uh, for listeners that don't know, cachaça is the native spirit of Brazil. It is just as much a national spirit as bourbon is in the United States. Um, and it's made out of freshly uh, squeezed sugarcane juice, right? So um, as opposed to rum, which tends to be made from molasses, um, the definition of cachaça is that's made in Brazil. It's made from uh, freshly squeezed, fermented and distilled sugarcane juice. And what fascinated me about this category was um, the just the even within that narrow definition the incredible diversity you get um, the incredible diversity you get uh, from the 
different native woods uh, that you can age this spirit in, right? And sometimes it's aged conventionally in oak, and oak is a very familiar flavor uh, to North Americans. But sometimes it's done in, in using woods that are only available in Brazil. And so you get amazing, just uh, amazing uh, taste profiles depending on uh, what wood it's been aged in. And whether it's been aged in wood at all, sometimes they age it in um, stainless steel tanks. I've got one cachaça, I've got about 50 bottles in my collection, and I got one wow. cachaça that is that was aged in a stone pit in the ground lined with paraffin wax. Uh, <laughs> and it's actually okay. Um, <laughs> and so what happened was in 2015, I had a uh, sabbatical. And of course, my in-laws, I mean, were the most generous people on the planet Earth. Uh, they've often taken me to these distilleries all around Rio. And uh, there was one of them I, I liked in particular, Cachaça Vernec, which was uh, the proprietor uh, was the CEO of Volvo Penta Brazil. So uh, Volvo Penta is the uh, boat motor division of Volvo. And when he retired, he, uh, he and his wife decided to start a distillery. Um, you know, about um, three hour-ish drive out of Rio, maybe more. And um, I, it came time where I had a, a three-week sabbatical. And I told my in-laws, I said, okay, remember that guy that used to be the CEO of Volvo Penta Brazil? Um, uh, I want to apprentice with him for two weeks. I don't expect to get paid. Uh, I want some kind of guarantee that I'm not taking a job from somebody who's relying on it to make a living. Um, but what I do want is I just want the experience of making cachaça. And so I made my pitch to uh, Eli uh, Vernick and he said, you know, absolutely. And I will tell you, it was two weeks Reveille at 6 a.m. We didn't get back to the residence until about 11 p.m. Uh, you know, I don't think I, I don't know anybody else who worked that hard during their sabbatical, frankly. <laughs> yeah. But we we made uh, you know, but I from the cutting to the juicing to the fermenting, the distilling, um, we made about. 750 liters in two weeks, which is a lot for a small batch distillery uh, like Vernick. And did you, uh, sorry, did you say 750 liters? Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So by the time you by the time you standardize, it was at at an average of 51% alcohol. So by the time you step it down to 40%, uh, you're talking about 1,400 bottles worth. You know, 1,400 750 mil bottles. Wow. And uh, and it was an incredible experience. I, I, I mean, and yeah, it was 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. most nights. But um, it, it was absolutely incredible. And um, I, uh, I, I have a stock presentation that I give the Kashasa Diaries. Uh, and I actually, uh, the other day, as I was uh, poking around my office, I found my handwritten notes from that period. Uh, which I'm like, well, you know, one of these days I need to scan it for posterity, uh, that sort of thing. But you can I encourage it anybody an to, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> then I'll sell it as an NFT. <laughs> nice.
Well, that's incredible. Um, so Phil, I mean, thanks again for, for doing this. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day again. Um, my just my to, pleasure. Just to wrap up, you know, where can people find you and, you know, any other last words you'd like to give? Sure. Uh, let me give a plug for uh, my employer and all our brands, right? So uh, block.com, B-L-O-Q.com. Um, obviously, uh, we're doing a lot of work right now with Vesper Finance, Vesper.finance. Uh, so please uh, give that a look. If you're into mining, check us out at Titan.io. So that's uh, software and services and protocols to make mining better. Uh, we like to say that we had the first, uh, the very first DeFi project. Go to metronome.io, check us out there. Uh, me personally, I'm at philgomes.com and I'm uh, at philgomes on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find links to everything Phil Gomes mentioned in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Moolah newsletter on review. I share my best discoveries in crypto with a tilt on community and culture. Link is also in the show notes. I am at Phil L. Hendricks on Twitter. Feel free to say hi. That's it for me. Peace out, everybody.